At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Fast Money starts right now. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Brian Kelly, Jeff Mills, Pete Najarian, and Mike Coe. Coming up on Fast, the Dow wrapping up its best five-day stretch in six weeks as we head into the Memorial Day weekend. How should you position yourself ahead of what could be a summer that is drastically different from any other we've seen before? Plus, running out of stream, why one analyst thinks there's not much more upside left for Roku. And in a special bonus hour of Fast Money, we're bringing you the Fast Five from the reopening trade to the race for the cure of the stories that had the biggest impact on your portfolio this week. But we begin tonight with the latest flare-up in China. Beijing announcing new security measures against Hong Kong, sending the Hang Seng to its worst day in almost five years. The move escalating tensions with the United States, with President Trump threatening, quote-unquote, strong reaction to that crackdown. So does China become a bigger headwind for the markets as we head into the summer? Pete Najarian, what do you say? Yeah, you know, Mel, it seems like there's always a different news story every single day that seems to lead us either up or down, right? I mean, it, on, on literally every day, whether it's earnings one day that we focus on that, the employment numbers the next day, China one other day, the, the virus, of course, and somebody having sort of a vaccine of some sort or another, there's always something leading the market. So what I was encouraged by today was the news yesterday and today about China and the U.S. and some of the issues that we're going to be facing probably going forward it seems to me like we've shaken that off pretty well. It's been a pretty impressive uh, ability of the markets to just say, you know what, because we could have very easily slid down today and been down 400 points going into the weekend like we were a, a Friday or two ago. So I was very encouraged by that. I continue to watch the volatility index, of course, extremely close. And I, I'm encouraged by the fact that we aren't seeing huge spikes anymore and we're seeing this contracted movement. I think that's a much healthier environment. And, and by the way, I think that everybody wants to focus on the big five. It's not the big five. It's biotech. There's a lot of different areas of the marketplace that are giving us a foundation, I think, for more upside to come in the future. Uh, we're either shaking off the worries about China or just not coming to grips with reality. Jeff Mills, what do you make of what is going on with China? I mean, what's also interesting is that the Communist Party has abandoned giving growth targets, which they normally do. Um, some say that that could show that Xi Jinping may be a little bit on his back foot, that he's, he's feeling a little bit cornered here because growth in China is slowing down and he needs to take control over Hong Kong before what could be a losing election for the Communist Party in September. Yeah, look, I think it's indicative of the global growth picture. I mean, China withdrawing its growth forecast. We're seeing with uh, company earnings here in the U.S. So and I would expect to see more tensions with China, quite frankly. I think you're going to see more bills come to Congress via unanimous consent. I think it's unpopular to try to block those bills now. And if you look at the dollar yuan relationship, for example, I know there are other things going on, but it looks a lot more like it did pre-trade deal than it did after the trade deal. So I think it could be sniffing out some problems there. Um, and really the bullish narrative right now, I think, is you know massive fiscal and monetary, monetary stimulus, reopening progression, all of these things. And I just don't know in combination if that's going to be enough to drive earnings enough to justify the market where it is right now. If you look over the past 20 years, the correlation between the S&P 500 and Ford EPS estimates is 0.9. Since the bottom 
uh, on March 23rd, it's been the mirror image of that. It's been negative 0.9. So the market's been going up. Earnings estimates have been coming down. And I don't know that the economic environment is such that we're going to see a massive recovery in earnings estimates. And we've also talked about the pain trade being higher. And I was in that camp a couple of weeks ago. I think we're moving away from that. Uh, the put-call ratio it's extremely low. It's actually below 0.53 right now. The last time that happened was January 2018 and then earlier this year. We both, we all know what happened uh, following both of those instances. And then also you're finally starting to see money flow out of money market funds. Um, and now we're bumping up the head at the headwind of the 200-day moving average. So I think there's a lot of things against the market right now. I wouldn't be surprised uh, for us to trade sort of sideways to down from here. That's a lot for a bear to chew on, Mike Coe. You agree with what Jeff Mills is saying? <laughs> I do. And also some of the things that Pete was saying as well. I mean, a couple of things that we can look at that basically the, fo the market's forward look at what we can expect over the coming months. You know, the VIX index, which basically is a measure of the market's expectation of forward volatility, actually dropped a little bit today, even, you know, despite this news that we were coming out of China. But the important thing is that that China news, you know, this is coming after day after day after day. It's a steady drip of just sort of increasingly negative sentiment on the China front. So I don't think that we should have anticipated necessarily that the market was going to sell off. Eventually, investors become a little bit anesthetized. When you con continue to hear the same bad news, it doesn't have sort of the shock and awe that's going to drive the market lower. Instead, I think basically what Jeff is talking about is what we should be paying attention to, which is what do we really think EPS for, for a lot of these larger companies is going to look like going forward? Some of them, obviously, are more immune to what's going on, but others certainly are not. There are big swaths of you know, publicly traded companies that are going to be facing considerable pressure for some period of time. And we've had quite a bounce off the bottom. And I actually kind of feel that if you have the opportunity, you might be wanting to pair some of those positions a little bit here. I, I can completely see the bear case. Um, at the same time, Brian Kelly, I mean, we know that companies are in for a tough road ahead. Uh, at the same time, I, I think that the reopening of America has happened probably faster than what a lot of people think. And I'm not talking about a complete reopening, of course, but all 50 states on some level have reopened to some degree. And I would think that that's probably a lot faster than what many people thought just a couple months ago when we were sort of in the depths of this pandemic. Yeah, I think that's probably right. And I think, you know, also the fact that we're, we were unsure how people were going to react when things reopen. So when you start to see beaches reopen and you start to see parks reopen and they're crowded again, that's a different story. But, you know, to me, if I look at the market here, we're talking about China and we're talking about the reopening and recovery from this vaccine. So the bull case here is that the Federal Reserve is going to pump enough liquidity, going to buy enough corporate bonds that companies can ride out the storm, however long that takes. The bear case is we get some kind of second wave and or we have a serious kind of trade dispute or deglobalization going on with China. To me, the deglobalization argument is a lot, is worse, I don't know if it's worse than the virus necessarily, but it's probably a longer term headwind for the market. So that's where we are. Those are the bull and the bear cases. And as Pete said at the beginning of the show, you know, every day there's something else driving it. The market's trying to decide. Investors are trying to decide. And we're at a decision point in the market. So to me, if I look into the next couple of weeks, I think that's going to determine what the next six months look like. So this week we had a couple of notable uh, performers, Pete Nigerian, and I'm talking about Amazon, Facebook, new highs for both those stocks, really benefiting both of those stocks from, from being, um, you know, be us being sheltered at home. Uh, are those the sorts mm -hmm. of names that carry us through post-pandemic, that bridge of Fed liquidity to getting us to the other side? Do we still stick with those Internet names, those winners? 
You know, I think those names, but also I'd add, add a few names to that list, as a matter of fact, Mel. I mean, we, we all know the big five. They all sound great. And Facebook being a part of somewhere in that mix of, of stocks. But, you know, it's all the verticals that Facebook has. And we talk about it all the time. But I don't know that everybody always pays attention to the idea that it's, not, it's no longer a Facebook story of Facebook. It's Instagram. It's Messenger. It's all the other little aspects, even, you know, the, 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 the shopping element of this whole thing. So there's, they're, they're doing so many other things as well, including competing with Zoom. So there's all kinds of different areas that I think would make that a very favorable move to the upside, even from where it is right now. And I love the balance sheet. I think that's great. And Amazon, Amazon's just Amazon. We know that. We all, we all look at the PE. We always say, oh, boy, that's really high and this and that. But we know the strength of AWS and the power they've got. But there's other areas of the marketplace as well. And I think there's a lot of, you know, we, it, for whatever reason, we don't talk as much about the big biotech names. We talk about all the smaller ones that are working on the virus. But if you take a look and you see some of the bigger names as well, they've been performing extremely well. The Amgens of the world and some of those kinds of names that trade much more like a pharmaceutical because they're so mature but i think there's a lot of room still to the upside because i think a lot of these various names in different uh, uh, segments and sectors i think that can power this market to the upside so i tend to be a little bit more bullish than i think i'm hearing from a lot of the other guys but a lot of that has to do with what's working now and what might be working i think even later as we get a little bit further along as long as things stay positive obviously with with what's going on with the pandemic all right. Well, energy prices, in case you haven't noticed, ending what had been a very strong week on a sour note. Crude oil falling 2 percent today. The fact that China didn't provide a growth target for the year, not helping expectations for fuel demand. Um, BK is uh, seeing some prices approach some key levels. So show us what you're looking at. Yeah, it's 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 kind of interesting. Listen, when you look at this, you look at, uh, you know, oil is now approaching, at least on Brent, if you kind of take a look at that, because the the WTI charts are a little screwed up because of those negative prices. But you look what happened with Brent crude. We're back at the levels that we had from the March 9th, 10th, that price war when we came over the weekend and all of a sudden Saudi Arabia said we're going to pump as much as possible. So we're back up at those levels. Now, when I look at gaps like that or any type of technical levels, to me, they're like it's a map, right? It's a signpost. Are we going to have a U-turn here or is it going to be an S-curve? So I look at it and say, hmm, you know what? The economy isn't getting any better. If this starts to roll over, to me, there's more signal in commodity prices and even copper prices than there are in stock prices about what the economy is going to be doing because the central banks aren't buying commodities. They're buying equity equivalents. Jeff Mills, what's your take? Yeah, well, to BK's point, I mean, it's not just oil, right? It's other commodities. And I think it is indicative of what's going on with global growth. In terms of oil and our exposure and energy, I think I've said it on the show before, but we don't really have a great edge in predicting the direction of the commodity. Given my view on global growth, obviously, I think it's probably sideways to down. But we do have some exposure and energy, and we would rather be further from the well, so to speak. So we like names like ExxonMobil, more of the integrated oils with reasonable balance sheets, solid dividends. So if you want exposure in that space, I would much prefer names like Exxon in the integrated space than something that's more exposed to the commodity. But overall, I think watching the commodities, to BK's point, it makes a lot of sense because they're sort of trading on their own and they're trading on their own supply-demand dynamics. So it could be a good tell as it relates to what's going on globally with economic growth. Where would you go on the equity side of it, Mike, for oil? Uh, well, it would definitely be, you know, Jeff was talking about the integrated. I think you want to be downstream. That's marketing and refining. And obviously, you know, a lot of the midstream companies were very hard hit 
uh, you know, the North American midstream companies were very hard hit. And I think that some of those might actually be a better play than, than was being priced in at the depths of it. But of course, you know, they're making a good point. The thing is that oil is trading on fundamentals. It's not really a technical issue here. Where can the oil go? You know, the Fed, central banks aren't buying oil because where are they going to put it? You can't put that on your balance sheet. You need storage to store oil. They don't have it. Nobody does. We continue to see elevated production, and we're not seeing consumption keep up with it. That's going to continue to put a lot of pressure on it. And if you take a look at the curve, the futures curve for oil, it's extremely, extremely steep. That is generally a short-term bearish condition reflecting gross oversupply, and that's exactly what we have. All right. Coming up, stimulus checks spurring a surge in stock trading, the one name that attracted the most interest since those checks went out. And later, Roku getting rocked today Why one analyst says things aren't getting much better from here for the company. Fast Money's back in two. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Welcome back. It's been just over a month since the government sent out stimulus checks and new data show that many Americans put that money to use in the stock market. According to data company InvestNet Yardley, trading was the second or third most popular use for those funds across income brackets. Americans making between $35,000 and $75,000 a year increased their trading by 90 percent compared to the week before they got their check. With this increased activity, how could the broker-dealers be setting up? How are Retail traders setting up, Pete. I mean, when you when you hear about Americans gambling away their stimulus checks, I don't know. That it makes me a little nervous. That makes me a little bit nervous as well. But I will say that the volumes speak for themselves, Mel. I mean, it's absolutely off the charts. As a matter of fact, if you just go over the last couple of weeks, we had about a five-day stretch where we were averaging about 31 million contracts per day. When I started on CNBC back in 07, we averaged about 10 million contracts per day. Gives you a little bit of an idea of how crazy things have become in terms of these volumes. Last year, we had a record volume of a little over 20 million per day. This year, we're running on about 27.5 million per day. So there is volume there. We've absolutely seen a lot of this throughout the pandemic. I'm not so positive that I, I'm, I would be encouraged by the idea of these checks going if, the, if indeed that's what, what's happening here. But we certainly are seeing the volumes and the volume explosion is there. Mike can speak to this as well. I, I've never seen so much option paper in my life and, and, and you can see it in the numbers. The numbers don't lie. It's amazing how much is out there. But I, I hope like heck people understand what they're doing, Mel, because they better be educated. The options world can be a very, very violent moving thing and you have to understand what your risks are. So hopefully they do. I mean, the stock market falls into the same category. I mean, this is money that people should be willing to to lose completely and feel comfortable in, in doing so. In theory, online brokers should see a benefit, Jeff Mills, except for the minor detail that it's been a race to zero when it comes to trading commissions. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. And I guess my take is a little less scientific than Pete's. But just anecdotally, I've gotten phone calls and texts from friends asking about getting into the market. And I don't know that that's necessarily stimulus check related, but you are seeing it. And it might sound a little bit silly, but you know, our buddy Dave Portnoy is a massive following in that younger demographic. And I think that day trading that he's doing uh, actually might have had an impact on people signing up for some of these online brokerages. I think looking at the stocks of some of these companies, E-Trade has held up the best, but it's actually bumping up now right against it's downward sloping 200 days. So I think it could be at a little bit of a tough spot. I would prefer a name like Schwab. Their earnings growth is a little bit quicker and they have the size and scale. You know, you see them gobbling up companies like TD Ameritrade and looking at USAA's investment assets and others. So I prefer a company like that with size and scale who can invest in technology. So I think all things considered with Schwab being down 30 percent, if I was looking across the board, and I'm assuming that this is actually going to have some sort of an impact on these companies, I'd probably choose Schwab. I guess my only concern is that maybe some of these people have been drawn into the market. You've had this massive rally, and everybody assumes, wow, you know what, this is pretty easy. But then if the market shakes and you have a little bit of a problem, I wonder how sticky some of these accounts actually are. That would yeah. be my question. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we were wondering, what exactly are these people trading? So <laughs> we looked at the data, um, and actually we were, we were seeing the, the stocks that show the most interest. Robin Track, which tracks data from Robin Hood, found that over the past month, these are the stocks that were most traded. Sorrenta Therapeutics, Aurora Cannabis, Moderna, Delta, General Electric, seeing the biggest increase in users holding those stocks. I mean, Mike, it looks like people are drawn to stocks that swing wildly. Are these any well, are any know, of these stocks interesting to you? Well, interesting on the short side, maybe. I, I don't certainly wouldn't be a buyer, I don't think. <laughs> of any one of these four. I mean, here, here is the reason why people are trading these things. I mean, I don't know that it's stimulus check related. It's probably related to the fact that people who would normally be preoccupying themselves with commuting to and from the office and worrying about work are instead sitting at home in front of their computers. If they've been thinking about opening up a brokerage account, now is their opportunity to do it. The markets are moving around, which obviously makes it tempting. And I think there's a little bit of video gaming that's going on. So they have the time to open up these accounts. They have the time to sit there and watch the market. The market's moving around. And so they're picking the most volatile stocks. And I can understand that. The thing is about a company like GE is that people have this, you know, this impression that the company's been around for 100 years and they figure it's going to continue to be around and this is just a temporary dip without actually recognizing that some companies could have significant or even permanent impairments. Some of the other companies, like the biotechs that people are trying to play on vaccines, that's also a really speculative game. And there's not any assurance, number one, that they're going to find vaccines in those cases that they're playing those stocks, or number two, that they're actually going to monetize it, really, other than maybe getting a little bit of goodwill out of it. We heard what Biden had to say today, for example, talking about making sure that if there was a vaccine available, that they would make it available free of charge. That suggests there would be pricing pressure. So even if you did identify one, Maybe not the best opportunity. I would urge people to stick with the, uh, with the indices on a broad basis if they're just starting out. We have some breaking news uh, on United Airlines. Let's get to Phil LeBeau for the latest. Phil. Hey, Melissa. Two days after United's annual meeting, they have released an AK with executive compensation. New CEO Scott Kirby is going to be paid a base salary of $1 million. New President Bret Hart will get $775,000 per year. But it's important to note that both of them will be foregoing their salaries for the remainder of this year. That's a commitment they made back when everything started with COVID-19. That continues through the remainder of this year. Also, their bonuses will be contingent upon United employees receiving profit-sharing checks. Clearly, that's not going to happen this year. So they won't receive a bonus until the frontline employees 
are once again receiving profit-sharing checks. And again, that is people would be stunned if that happened this year. Melissa, back to you. Phil, there's been a lot of scrutiny on the airlines, specifically United. I mean, didn't they unveil plans to start laying off employees the, the day, the first day possible after getting the bailout money? October 1st, I think, is the date. Well, they've said that they plan with at least 30 percent of their management and administrative staff that starting October 1st, they would go forward with potentially uh, laying off furloughing up to 30% of those employees. And then clearly, if traffic and if business does not rebound substantially by the end of September, you're likely going to see puts, uh, cuts in terms of uh, furloughs with uh, pilots, flight attendants, etc. Although, when we talked to Scott Kirby the other day, Melissa, he said, look, we want to work with the unions. If we can work out a system where they have fewer hours and therefore we can keep people and not have to furlough people, that would be preferable. All right. Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau joining us with the latest news on United Airlines. Um, you know, you take government money, BK, and all of a sudden the government will have a say in how you do things. <laughs> and I think that's what the airlines are coming up against <laughs> at this point. Yeah, Im imagine that, right? Imagine that, that, that somebody gives you money and they actually want to tell you what to do. It's, it's shocking. I, you know, I, to go back to, you know, in terms of what's going to happen in the fall, there's just so many unknowns. It's kind of like what Warren Buffett said and probably the reason why he sold the airlines. The, the, the number of things that can happen between now and October are so diverse, it's hard to put a probability on them. Are we going to have a second wave? Will people get back on planes? Uh, you know, will airlines survive through this? There's so many different things that can happen. I wouldn't touch the airlines with Pete's money. <laughs> All right, coming up. It's been, and you like Pete, too. Uh, it's been a rough week for Roku. Yeah, why the stay-at-home surge for the stock may be over. Plus, we'll be back with a special hour of Fast Money at 6 p.m. Stay with us. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. We've got some more breaking news. We go once again to Phil LeBeau with the latest on Hertz. Phil. Melissa Dow Jones citing sources says that Hertz may file for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection as soon as tonight or in the next couple of days. If it seems like you've heard this headline in the last week or two, it's because we have heard this type of headline in the last week or two, only to see Hertz make a debt payment or say, nope, we're still going. So this is the pressure you're seeing on Hertz after hours down about 13%. Again, Dow Jones citing sources saying that we could see a Chapter 11 bankruptcy filing from Hertz as soon as tonight. Melissa, back to you. All right, Phil, thank you. And you see the stock down almost 16 percent. Uh, Brian Kelly, I guess we shouldn't be surprised necessarily. You see less traffic uh, on airplanes and you got fewer people renting the cars when they get out. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you think about what you do when you get off a plane, you rent a car and you go to a hotel and none of those are doing that well. So Hertz isn't doing that well. You know, it's interesting. They are selling off their their fleet. And so Phil's talking about how they make these debt payments. That's basically what they're doing. So they go from week to week. How many cars do we sell this week? Can we pay the bills? If the answer is no, let's shut the lights off. And so, you know, for me, I, I wouldn't touch this at all, but I would look to buy a car from Hertz. All right. Uh, again, the stock is down now. About 19 uh, percent. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Jeff Mills, what do you say? I think it's worth taking a look at Lowe's here. You know, the stock's consistently traded at a lower multiple than Home Depot and maybe for good reason. But I do think that management has the company turning a corner. I think you could see a re-rating of multiple. Online sales are looking better. Same store comps are looking good. So worth a look, Lowe's. Mike Coe. Yeah, I think I like Microsoft. It doesn't sound like I like any stocks, but I like Microsoft. This is a company that's doing everything right. Fundamentally, they've got a lot of tailwinds, and the options aren't overly expensive, and that's the way I would play it to the upside. Petey. I got a crazy one for you, Splunk. It's not a name that I talk about very often, but the cloud services numbers were unbelievable. I think this is going higher. All right, 6 o'clock special. OA is up next. Stay tuned. Hey, everybody, and a special hello to all you Mad Money fans. I'm Melissa Lee. Jim is off today, but you are in luck. We've got a special edition of Fast Money lined up for you. We're calling it the Fast Five. We are counting down uh, on the five hottest stories that impacted your money this week. Here for the countdown, Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, and Brian Kelly is back with us. Let's get right to it. And we begin the countdown with the race to reopen. All 50 states now back to business in some form or fashion. This even as U.S. deaths from the coronavirus continue to rise. On Wall Street, stocks push higher as a nation opened back up. And while initially many were quick to condemn those who oppose stay-at-home measures, there seems to have been a major swing in sentiment lately. Check out what former Goldman Sachs CEO Lloyd Blankfein tweeted. He wrote, hospitals are not overwhelmed. Most of us will be exposed anyway since we can't sequester until there's a vax, meaning vaccine, and we know which groups need protection from worst outcomes. Is the public health benefit from broad lockdowns at this point worth such extreme damage to livelihoods? And this all, of course, goes to the debate about what is more important, the potential human lives lost, which are, of course, very important, or the toll on the economy and possibly irreparable damage to the economy. Tim Seymour. Well, look, uh, Mel, if you, if you think about where Lloyd Blankfein was on April 24th, I follow Lloyd on Twitter, by the way. Uh, he doesn't tweet that often. And when he does, he's got something to say. And, and a month ago, he was saying, I'm not so sure it's wise uh, for states to be opening, but that's why we have a federal system where states can do what they do. And he was a little bit he was somewhat critical of Georgia. Here he is coming in and talking about uh, a more populous line. I, I mean, I think there's politics attached to this. I think there's economics attached to this. And I think it's fascinating. At, at the bottom line is it's what's happening. And, and I do think um, Lloyd Blankfein jumping in when some might have expected him to be one of the folks weighing in on a more conservative tone to to lay low and let the virus uh, you know, be the, the number one concern. He's saying, you know what? The economy might be the number one concern right now. And Lloyd Blankfein is someone we all listen to. The, the point that you made earlier on our on our call to get ready for the show, Tim, was really interesting. And that is that Lloyd Blankfein is a registered Democrat. That is that is a known fact. And yeah. so for him to come down and break down sort of the political divide, unfortunately, the, the issue of reopening the economy became a political one. And so he sort of breaks down those barriers at this point, Dan Nathan. And, and maybe we'll have a, a much more sort of robust discussion about about, you know, 
the cost to the economy, the cost to livelihoods, that you know, all of these other sort of things that we need to, to weigh when deciding to reopen. It's not just who's going to get sick and, and are the hospitals uh, overwhelmed. Yeah, I think the political one is is kind of a curious one. You know, I look at this view, uh, this tweet from from Blank Fine. It's kind of bandwagonish. I don't think he's saying anything that most people in this country don't already feel. Um, and so, to kind of make it a political thing is kind of goofy. You know, New York State is obviously the hardest hit state um, in, in the all fifty states, one of the hardest hit regions on the planet here, and it's a blue state, California also a blue state, took some pretty significant measures even earlier than New York State. They represent 25% of the U.S.'s GDP. I just think it's kind of a goofy political argument here, red state versus blue state. Everybody wants to get back to business. Everybody wants to get to normal. The quarantine and the shelter in place was to avoid a health crisis bigger than what we were going to face as far as the deaths from the virus. And we've successfully done that. I think everybody is in agreement. We need to get out of our homes. We need to get back to work. We need to be safe about it. I think there is a sense of irony, though, that the people who are waving the flag the hardest to get back to it are the very ones who will not listen to the scientists and will not wear masks and do social distancing. So, you know, we're going to find ourselves in a very weird situation for the balance of this year until we get more therapies, uh, you know, and, and really progress on a vaccine. So I think investors who are thinking about this through the stock market lens should be fully prepared for flare ups and potential further lockdowns. And that is the real worry, I would say, as far as risk assets are concerned for the second half of 2020. I guess I bring up the political aspect only because if it does seem that everybody is sort of getting behind this message at this point, it does seem that way, uh, that that that's sort of the, the prevailing sentiment at this point, that perhaps what the stock market is riding on, BK, is not just hope. I mean, it's, it's sort of like we are here and we have made it to the other side. And, and isn't that a reason for the stock market to be higher? Yeah, I, I, certainly. I think that's that's one reason why is people have kind of looked through the valley as the cliche goes and said, hey, we're on the other side of this. The country's reopened, by the way. I mean, it is reopened. It did the whole the whole country did not really even shut down all that much. I don't think we're going to have a lockdown ever again in this country based on the people I'm talking to. and What I see, I don't think you lock this country down again. I also don't think we have a second wave. I think we just have one giant wave as we go for herd immunity. That's really the choice that we've made, uh, whether it's political or not, that's the choice that we've made. So investors have to be prepared for that. And if investors are saying, hey, listen, as long as these companies can hold out until we get back to some kind of normalization, then all right, then, then I'll hold on to these stocks. Uh, but if you don't think that that's going to happen, if you don't think the liquidity is going to be there, then you have a problem with the stock market. I Nonetheless, you, I am sympathetic to the re- Yep. No, I was going to say, you know, you mentioned herd immunity and, and this notion of this giant wave. I don't know if you guys caught the interview with Ricky Sandler of Eminence Capital on Squawk on the Street. I believe it was yesterday, but he wrote this open letter. And, and one point in his letter is that, you know, maybe we should all just try and, and, and accomplish herd immunity. He could see a world in which there are concerts where young people go there, they catch the virus, and, and you develop herd immunity. But, I mean, is this mentality, does this mentality, Tim, pave the way for investors to accept, you know what, I mean, if this is the outcome that we're going to go for and we're going to brace for this wave. And so therefore, when it comes to the coronavirus and the pandemic being an impact on a trade, um, it, it's much easier sort to sort of digest if, if that's the base case scenario that you're factoring in. 
I think we've digested uh, a lot of, of this scenario already. Uh, and when you think about that, you know, we've gone through an earnings season largely completed, um, in some cases, especially in mega cap tech land, actually very resilient, stabilization, those types of words were used. Um, so, so investors and the market uh, are looking at three things. Um, they're, they're not looking at 2020. Uh, they're looking at the end of 2021, and that's how we're all doing our earnings multiples at this point. And, and fair, fair enough, I don't know, but that's, that's it. 2020 is a, is a mulligan. Central bank mania. Um, so the Fed is out there. Powell is basically continuing to talk about his bazooka, um, much like Paulson did. Um, and this is a case where we've had this enormous fiscal and monetary response. Monetary has outweighed fiscal. Fiscal's been decent. Uh, threats of more fiscal or maybe more fiscal. Um, and, and then finally, you have a case where what's going on truly in the economy and what we've seen in China is that you get a pretty quick snap back, but then you start to level off. And that, in fact, you are starting to see some of the pain of, of a lot of companies actually, you know, coming back at 70 percent of where you were is 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 awful. All right. So um, I, I think that back to herd mentality, back to what we do. Um, should we be here in the stock market? Um, probably not. Um, but it, we, we, we've done this with central banks before. And, and I think largely removing at least the credit obstacles that were in the market is part of why the market is able to now take that next step forward. So I, I think we've I think the market's in herd mentality right now. And, and Dan even referred to we're going to just kind of get on with it. And there's going to be some painful moments here in, in the next six to eight weeks, if not six to eight months, um, as we realize that we're not coming back. And we are our kids are probably not going back to school. Makes my kids pretty happy. But I bet the fall's very different than last fall. Dan. Yeah, I, I just think that the, the difference this time to the last crisis that, is that the, the economy is fundamentally changed. To Tim's point, you're lucky if you're a business and you're coming back at 70% of your prior revenues. The way that you have to sell your products and services going forward is going to be totally different. The costs are going to be higher. You're going to employ fewer people. So I think what the market doesn't discount right here is the fact that, fine, we may not get slammed with a second wave. We may not have further lockdowns, but until there is a vaccine, the economy is different. There are going to be way more people unemployed. That means way less discretionary spending here. And so I just think that there's just no no focus on that whatsoever. So we may spike up to 25% unemployment. We are likely to settle in somewhere for the balance of 2020 and 2021, somewhere double of where we were at 60-year lows just five months ago on the unemployment. You tell me that you get a V reversal in the economy like that, you're lucky at 2021 if we're back to prior levels. And I'll just make one point on valuation. The S&P 500 is trading over 20 times 12 months out um, P.E. right now, that's well above the 17 um, average of the last five years and the 15 average over the last 10 years. So at some point, I think the market is clearly V reversed. I don't think there's anyone on this program who didn't think that was going to happen at some point. It's just overshot largely because of that bazooka. And then the uncertainties about the economy at some point will seep in this summer, I suspect. All right. We're just getting started here on this special edition of Fast Money. Up next, we're tackling four more big money stories from this week, including some wild moves in biotech and the China factor coming back into play in a big way. All that and much more when we return.
Some really major news from Moderna this morning. I think these are the first human data we're seeing on a COVID-19 vaccine program. Up by 20% on this news, the futures themselves are picking up. Moderna, the stock of the day, the pharmaceutical giant that announced today some promising results of early results in its vaccine trials, just announcing a secondary offering. If the vaccine were to be successful, the stock would be 30% higher where it is now, and there would be a better time to do a secondary. So label me skeptical. Story from Stat News. It's getting some attention this afternoon and potentially moving stocks. The headline, vaccine experts say Moderna didn't produce data critical to assessing COVID-19 vaccine. Stock sold off sharply into the close. Moderna, of course, uh, finishing the day sharply lower. We stand by what we say. We felt as a company following obtaining the results which just occurred that it was prudent for us to add to our resources and invest directly from our balance sheet. Even though it's a small number of individuals and it's the first step in a multi-step process, it was still very encouraging. And there you have it. Story number four this week, Moderna, the stock taking Wall Street on a wild ride. This is the ultimate hope trade for the markets, for the economy, for biotech, for humanity. You might as well throw that in there, too, because we're all hoping for a vaccine there. Uh, Brian Kelly, what do you make of, of a trade like this? And it's not just Moderna. We've seen this time and time again with smaller biotechs that are really moving on the hopes that they are somewhere closer in some form or fashion to a vaccine. Well, right. And, and this vaccine, clearly, whoever the, comes up with the first one, it's going to be a blockbuster vaccine for them. So, you know, we, we saw... A lot of hopium on this. Again, you know, there's eight out of eight. Some doctors say that that seems to be pretty good, but it's eight people. So you're subject to these things, the stories like we saw that, hey, maybe there weren't enough people. Well, you know, I took Stats 101. I know that if you only have eight people in your sample size, that's not really statistically robust. Nonetheless, I am hopeful. I hope we get a vaccine. I want to go outside. BK likes to play outside. So, you know, I'm looking for that. But in terms of investors, this is just pure hope right now. Nobody has any idea whether or not this is going to work. If it does work, can they manufacture it? How long it takes to manufacture it? Who's going to be the first people to stick this thing in their arm and see if they get sick? Oh, yeah. And by the way, we need it for a couple billion people. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, Governments want it for free. I mean, we don't know how much money (laughs) these companies will actually make, if anything, on any of these vaccines. When you take a look at billions of dollars in market cap, you know, three or so in the case of an AstraZeneca or, you know, for Moderna, a 20 percent stock pop, pop, Tim, you have to back up and wonder, is that market cap being added? Is that even going to come into play when when the company releases this product in terms of making money? No, because as I was and as I was reading research reports on that day on, on especially also with the secondary, they were raising that extra one point three billion to you know work towards the actual dosage, not only to complete the testing. Um, and then, you know, they start talking about a billion doses, a, a billion doses at 10 bucks a pop. And wow, this could be a 10 billion dollar uh, revenue for the for the company. In the next, I mean, that 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 kind of calculation is is really irrelevant right now. First of all, Moderna was was S&P optionality. That's what it was this week in the same way uh, the Gilead announcement of 
of three and a half weeks ago or four weeks ago, Friday, I think we were on this show. Uh, and, and I think we, we talked about that. It might have been right before you came back, Mel. Um, so it was a case where um, I think, you know, if you look at all of the biotech news, it's, it's, it's news for humanity. Um, but ultimately, when I look at biotech, I, I look at, say, the IBB, which use that as your proxy, the ETF that is the six or seven uh, largest biotech names that make up the, you know, the top 50 percent of it. Uh, that stock, uh, that ETF was trending higher for the last year. Uh, biotech stocks, especially in an environment where people have been concerned about balance sheets and people have been concerned about earnings, you know, uh, Regeneron, Amgen, Gilead, uh, you know, Gilead, even with its issues with HCV and HIV drugs that are, uh, have seen their best days, these are still cash flow, comp- cash flow generating companies, and these are still great balance sheets with a fair amount of optionality. That's why I think you were buying biotech before COVID-19. That's why you should be buying them now. Um, and basically, Moderna, Gilead, Abbott, uh, you name it, AstraZeneca, these were S&P options for the market. For right here, right now, though, Dan, I mean, Tim brings a good point in terms of the trend in biotech prior to the pandemic, prior to this whole notion of a vaccine coming about. Um, but given that there is some some froth. And we talked to Michael Yee over at Jefferies, and he said the flows into into the biotech ETFs has been very strong in the past few weeks. And he believes that most of that flow has been retail investors. We cans, in other words. Yeah, that yeah, that that's a great point, Mel. I was I was on the, uh, that night when we had him on. And, you know, when you think about it, I think uh, BK used the term hopium. You know, listen, it, it's really funny, right? Like, Stocks are supply demand, right? The stock was a teenager in February, and then it traded as high as 85 after the news came out that they had, you know, possibly some um, some good data uh, on this vaccine. I mean, give the people what they want. They want to buy your stock, sell the stock to them. They did it in a big way. They put $1.2 billion on their balance sheet, which basically ensures their survival no matter what happens with their success on this vaccine. Let's hope that it's good data. Let's hope that it was on the up and up the whole process. But I don't know how you can kind of argue against that. One last point I'll just make is that if you're looking at the options market, the expectations for movement um, continue to be just crazy off the charts. Um, looking a week out, the options market is implying about a 10% move in either direction. Looking a month out, it's looking like a 25% move um, in either direction. So my point to retail would be understand what you're buying. You know, Tim just said optionality or this and that or whatever. Those are very expensive options, especially after a stock has moved 250% um, with very little data. Yeah, I actually think that's a great point that that Dan brings up there, right? You're talking about something that's going to move 25% in multiple weeks. If you're out there as a retail investor, and we just did a story about how some people are taking their, their, their check from the government, putting it into the market, you're just ladling on top of this. If you're going to be playing options, you're ladling on leverage on top of an already volatile uh, underlying stock here. So to me, I, I, it's it's extremely risky. It's a lottery ticket at this point in time. Uh, but but I do think Tim makes a good point. This is like a call option on the S&P 500. So to me, if I'm going to do that, why not just buy the S&P 500 calls with the VIX right. down here below 30? Uh, much better way to play it. Yep. Coming up, the countdown continues with the three C's. We're talking China, corporate taxes and commutes. The special edition of Fast Money is back right after this. Welcome back to the special edition of Fast Money. We're counting down our top five stories of the week. Two down, three to go, but we've got to take a fast break. It is Memorial Day weekend, so I have to ask, does anybody have any travel plans? Tim, are you going anywhere? 
I'm going to be wearing out a path between my house and my smoker. Uh, Mel, I know you like to do a nice 13, 14 hour brisket smoked uh, uh, very slow, uh, very slow on the smoker, kind of that old fashioned choo choo train thing. So uh, that's what I do. And, 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 you know, that's what Memorial Day is all about in my house. So um, I, I wouldn't be going anywhere anyway. And, and uh, this year is extra focus. I've got a 16 pound brisket. I, I think it's going to take me 12 to 13 hours. Take the over under, uh, obviously chilling some Budweiser's along with that waving the flag drinking you know that's memorial day right that's what we do i mean dan i've seen some pictures of your barbecues they, they look awesome i don't know what you're you know if that's going to happen <laughs> this weekend <laughs> you, you know you know mel our invite must be in the mail or you know because uh tim's barbecue yeah don't worry dan don't worry amazing it's on yeah. its way yeah well you know you know <laughs> listen my, mine's a bit more sentimental i mean tim's just gonna do the beef and the beer you know I, i'm I'm missing my parents here. I haven't seen them in four months. I'm going upstate. I'm going to see my parents, my sister. I, I, I think, you know, my nephew. I, I think this is one of the things that I think we kind of, as a species, kind of hit a breaking point of being kind of caged up um, at this point. And, and it speaks to what we were talking about earlier on the show. Um, you know, we're ready to go out and interact with some other people, but we got to be safe. we got to wear a mask. we got to do the hygiene, the social distancing, that sort of thing. And I think that's going to be the real test for this country, you know, we did a great job in this lockdown for the most part. We flattened the curve. We got to a point where we can kind of handle this thing as we move towards herd immunity. Um, but now it's really important, actually, I guess, uh, reconnect with our loved ones a little bit. And Mel, I'm missing you. I haven't seen you since February. So, you know, maybe we'll get a little wow. smoked brisket and some Budweiser's going this summer. This has been the longest period in my life that I've been away from you guys. I mean, in, in oh. however many years, 13 years, and it, and it really it really hurts. I really feel it. It's just not the same. I mean, it's nice to see your shining face, BK. I love seeing the dog run around in the background, but yeah. it's, just, it's not the same as being face-to-face. -face. Yeah, it's, it's not the same. And uh, Ellie and Tallulah over here want to be on TV. They think they're superstars. But it, it is not the same. Um, you know, like Dan said, as human beings, we, we want this contact. But I think it's right when you think about how you're going to travel in the next, let's call it, six months or so, it's unlikely you get on a plane. At least it's unlikely for BK to get on a plane. But I'll hop in a car. I'll see, see family or friends that I haven't seen. Kind of make that, you know, the quarantine, I think, is the uh, word everybody's using now, is get your quarantine together. Uh, people that you know have been kind of at home, haven't necessarily been exposed or at low risk of exposure. Um, I think you see a lot of car travel. Uh, you know, the other thing is business travel. Let's talk about that. I mean, you know, I had planned in this spring, March and April, I had planned a, a trip or two to Asia. Uh, everything that I had going on there got canceled. And it's unlikely I will go to Asia until 2021 at the earliest. Right. It's socially acceptable now for me to do this type of thing. So, you know, why wouldn't BK hang out and do that? He doesn't have a fancy smoker. He doesn't smoke things like Tim does. <laughs> Uh, I do get invited to his barbecue. BK, you got a like boat. You guys, but I want to go on your boat. I, I do. <laughs> it's a dinghy. It's a dinghy. All right. I want to get on your boat. Coming up, tensions rising with China. Big developments breaking out in the past 24 hours. We will tackle that and the rest of this week's top stories. The special edition of Fast Money is back in two. Welcome back to the special edition of Fast Money. We are counting down the five hottest stories of the week. Number three, China. Tensions rising this week on several fronts. Let's get to Kayla Tausche for the very latest. Kayla. 
Melissa, China acknowledging it cannot control the economic toll of the coronavirus. The country this week scrapping its annual GDP growth target for the first time in nearly three decades. But the Chinese Communist Party is seeking to impose control where it can, introducing a new strict national security law in Hong Kong that would crack down on protests and gatherings. And critics say it would likely strip the semi-autonomous territory of the few freedoms its people enjoy that mainland Chinese do not. Stocks in Hong Kong fell more than 5 percent today as global leaders widely condemned the new law, which could go into effect in late June. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said for his part that it would be a death knell for the high degree of autonomy Beijing promised for Hong Kong and that enacting it would cause the U.S. to reevaluate its policies toward the territory. Now, with tensions mounting in recent weeks, the U.S. has taken a series of actions to limit business and investment with China. The Labor Department discouraging federal retirement funds from investing in indexes with Chinese stocks. The Senate this week passing a bill threatening to delist from stock exchanges companies with Chinese government ties. And the Commerce Department just today announcing 33 Chinese companies will be banned from doing business with U.S. counterparts. Americans, too, have become increasingly wary of China. In a recent morning consult poll, 31 percent of respondents described China as an enemy. That's a rise of 11 percentage points just this year. And Melissa, the rhetoric will only get hotter with President Donald Trump and Vice President Joe Biden spending a reported $12 million on campaign ads just about China. Melissa? All right, Kayla, thank you. Kayla Tausche in Washington. Um, it's been sort of a drip, drip, drip of increasing tensions, Tim, and it seems like the market at every turn has been sort of inured to it at this point. Um, how much of a mistake is that in your view, or, or should we look past this? I, I think we cannot be inured. Uh, if you think about what the headwinds were on the trade front, uh, there's just, you know, effectively doing that and, and maybe and then some. I mean, the, the, the nationalization and security measures against Hong Kong uh, are very significant. And, and remember the Hong Kong protests. And remember, um, that was almost independent of trade war and what that meant. And the concern around Hong Kong were important. Um, you know, the fact that China has scrapped their their GDP forecasts, it's, it's kind of like the CFO in today's uh, earnings uh, results of any company. Uh, you know, first of all, I actually think that's good news. I don't think it's bad news. Um, but but between uh, what's truly going on on the trade rancor and that is being ratcheted up, obviously, when uh, Congress is is teeing up legislation against Chinese companies listing here, uh, you're seeing, uh, you know, folks like the Nasdaq being very concerned and enacting more stringent rules. Um, you're, you're starting to see what gives way. Alibaba had been very defensive. They had numbers out uh, also. And, and those were, you know, those were fine. Um, but but finally gave way. And if you look at the EEM, which is uh, 12 or 13 percent between Alibaba, Tencent, uh, China Construction Bank. I mean, you have a lot of exposure at the top of that for emerging markets to be exposed here. So um, this was a this was a very difficult week. I'm long Alibaba. Um, I think the fundamentals there are very, very solid. And if I look at uh, mega cap tech companies and I look at secular trends that are going on in China, their online spending is up 80 percent year over year. I love that. Uh, but I hate this news. And I think it's going to get sloppy. You know, it's just interesting, Tim, you know, you mentioned Alibaba and they've really had this benefit over the last 10 years or so of this emerging middle class of the Chinese with all of a sudden just this disposable income to spend. And obviously that's becoming far more nationalistic. I think them pulling their GDP targets and their really slowness to kind of put in some stimulus for their economy tells you that things might not be going nearly as rosy in China as we think. Um, and President Xi is in a tough spot. 
What I take that back to is that he cannot look weak in front of Donald Trump, who might not be president come January 21st, uh, 2021. And I think there's a dramatic um, potential for this thing to escalate over the balance of 2020, um, because just like Trump can't give in an election year, President Xi is, 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 you know, got a lot of pressure. And I think the Hong Kong news this week is the most important thing going on because we kept our mouths pretty silent when there were hundreds of thousands of people protesting in the streets last summer because we were trying to get a trade deal done to turn that thing upside down now and be very hawkish about it. It looks, I don't know, it looks pretty political. So to me, I would expect this China thing to stick around and it's not going to abate before the election. And I think that will be a headwind to growth globally. It, yeah, you know what? It is, a, it is a headwind. And you know what's interesting? I'm actually really digging this kind of long form, fast money. We get to talk about a, a lot of different things. So BK is going to take a second here and he's going to talk Good. a little bit about what we're witnessing is what people call Thucydides trap. Not people. It's actually what it's called, Thucydides trap. And it describes what happens when you have a rising power challenging the former power. And that's exactly what's going on. So you can look back in history. You can see this what happened with Great Britain and the U.S. It's happened many multiple times throughout history. Unfortunately, it doesn't really end that well. And that's why I think this is probably one of the more concerning things that are going on out there. I mean, best case scenario, end up in some sort of trade war and or deglobalization, which I think is happening anyway. Worst case scenario, you end up in some sort of kinetic conflict, which is not great either. I, I don't want to be in either of those. So I do think you have to keep your eye on this. I do think you have to keep your eye not just on Hong Kong, but let's also remember Taiwan as well. China changed a, 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 a wording in how they're going to kind of reintegrate Taiwan from a peaceful reintegration to simply just an integration. And that's very big when it comes to kind of signaling on the geopolitical landscape. So I think you watch this space. To me, it is probably one of the bigger things, the bigger threats to markets in general. All right. Let's bring in Cleet Williams, the former deputy director of the National Economic Council, for more on this emerging threat coming from China. Cleet, great to have you with us. Thank you. As you interpret what has gone on this week and specifically interpret the abandonment of the GDP forecast, um, national security laws in Hong Kong, uh, trying to integrate Taiwan. I mean, how do you how do you interpret these actions and what do you think uh, Xi Jinping? It, it seems like he's he's on his back foot right now. I think that's right. And, and I agree with a lot of the previous commentators in that this is a very worrying escalation. And I, I do think it's something the markets need to be paying more attention to than they are. And, I mean, the, the stuff that's happened in the last couple of weeks is mind-boggling. You know, you have China uh, being increasingly assertive, uh, very provocative moves this week on Hong Kong. I, I think that the language change on Taiwan is significant. They've got, you know, what they call their wolf warriors on Twitter, you know, out there attacking the U.S. administration, attacking the U.S. president, which is a very big change in tone for them. Uh, so I'm very worried about that. You look what's happening in the U.S. and all the actions that we've taken, you know, whether it's the export controls or the changes in our investment programs, the possibility of uh, delisting of stocks. Now, I want to be clear. I think some of what we're doing is very justified. I mean, China is an international outlier in terms of not providing our regulators with access to, to audits so that we can assess financial viability and we need to do something there. But what worries me is just the frequency of the actions on both sides and the language that accompanies it 
language where we're essentially calling each other the enemy. And so, I mean, I see this major escalation. I don't know what slows it down. What I, I, one, of, one of the others uh, mentioned the Thucydides trap. I mean, I, I think you do see some of that going on. And the way to get out of that is really for the international community to step up. If China sees this as the U.S. being threatened and trying to keep it down, that elicits one kind of response. But if China sees that it's an international outlier, then maybe we have hope to get off of some of the worst outcomes here. And so we really need to see others step up on all of these issues. I mean, that would be ideal, but we've seen this time and time again um, in terms of tensions between the U.S. and China. It's always been it's been bilateral. uh, And that's the way the two sides or at least that's the way the U.S. wants it. And so um, if that's the case, Cleet, what do you think if this is a tit for tat and China's going to retaliate? What is the retaliation? What is the what is the most likely method of retaliation right now? Well, it, it depends on, on what the issue is. I mean, what China always likes to do is, is act reciprocally. Um, you know, they, they like to try to maintain the moral high ground by saying, oh, the U.S. did this, and therefore we're going to do something in the same sector. You know, when we raise tariffs, they raise tariffs. Um, when, you know, we do things that relate to investments, they'll do things that relate to investments. So I think, it, you know, it depends on the issue. But I think in many ways what you see on Hong Kong, what you see on Taiwan already is a response. You know, they see this dynamic shifting in the U.S., and they are therefore becoming increasingly assertive and throwing their weight around, trying to throw their weight around on the international stage. Right. Cleet, great to speak with you. Thank you. My pleasure. Cleet Williams. Uh, you know, when the trade war was going on, and I guess the, in theory it is, this is another form, another iteration of a trade war. Um, but when that was going on, Dan, we, we saw the tech sector hit very hard. People assumed that the supply chains would be disrupted, that, that companies be forced to move out of China um, how does this ramp intentions escalate that or accelerate that? Well, think about it, Mel. From a scarcity standpoint, for growth stocks, obviously China was one a place that was of great interest. Like, you know, just look at Alibaba over the last you know five or six years since it listed here, um, tremendous ownership here. But I think it reinforces the mega cap names that are not in China, the U.S. names that are listed here. You look at Facebook making new highs, you know, this week. Um, Amazon again, not in China. Um, you know, the Apple is the real issue here, right? They. Um, have their phones and their their computers made over there. There's millions of Chinese through contract manufacturers. They're employed to do that. The supply chains exist around that. They have very special treatment by the Chinese for this. So, um, you know, to me, Apple, again, is always going to be the last battle fought in the trade war. But again, they don't seem to care, or at least investors don't right now. Um, it's really hardware ones that I'd be most uh, concerned with right now. All right. Coming up, We reveal our final two stories of the week. Both could have major impact on the future of American business. We'll tell you all about them when we come right back. Welcome back. We're continuing our countdown of the five biggest stories this week. Our number two story, Joe Biden, the former vice president and presumptive Democratic nominee targeting Amazon on CNBC this morning. I think Amazon should start paying their taxes. Okay, I don't think any company, I don't give a damn how big they are. The Lord Almighty should absolutely be in a position where they pay no tax and make billions and billions and billions of dollars. In that same interview, Biden's also pushing his plan to raise corporate taxes. The corporate tax rate, I'd move back to what I had proposed at 28 percent. 
what we had proposed at 28 percent, because I want to make sure that we see that these corporations, that's not going to take them under. Should companies be worried that uh, the tax break they got is going to be taken away, Tim? I think, you know, politically, it's it's expedient to talk about uh, attacking fat cat corporates that pay a low effective tax rate. I, I think um, targeting uh, blanket higher corporate tax rates probably isn't terribly popular. Um, I think, you know, targeting, you know, specific companies is, is easier. Um, uh, you know, to me, um, this is not political you know, analysis show, um, but but to garner uh, the widest swath of votes, which means that you're actually, yes, you're 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 throwing a bone to the, you know, kind of the mass population. And he talked about this $400,000 or less, you won't see higher taxes. Uh, you know, that's that's an appeal to the masses. Um, but but I, I think, you know, the, the corporate tax uh, cut that went through under the Trump administration was something that I thought was reasonably popular. Um, how effective it was is the big issue. Um, so uh, going after some of these companies, I think, will continue to be a, a trend. And I think that's uh, probably where you're going to continue to see pressure on a handful of those low effective tax uh, companies. I think politically, uh, the way to garner the most support is, is, to, is to not challenge lower corporate taxes in America. Does, does this debate over corporate taxes change or, or get influenced by the pandemic, Brian Kelly? And I'm just thinking about, you know, a Main Street backlash, uh, Main Street wanting to be bailed out. They see companies paying low taxes. Why don't you pay more taxes so that we can have other programs to help us get out of this pandemic? There's no question at all Main Street saying, where's my bailout? There, there, there's no question at all. I don't think we get through this crisis without there's being some kind of Main Street bailout. It's not going to be like 2007, 2008, where the people closest to the spigot, those who, who had you know, assets, big equity holdings, were asset managers or banks, they're the ones that got rich and Main Street's living standards didn't go any higher. I think that's going to flip this time. But I also think it's going to be really difficult to raise taxes. It's great to talk about in a campaign. It's really difficult to do. So where does that leave us? That leaves us with some sort of a monetary financing. Let's you know, people will call it modern, modern monetary theory. Uh, you basically you're going to issue a ton of debt. Fed's going to buy it. We pay for everything. And that's how, that's how we get out of this crisis. I'm not suggesting that that's the right way to do it. I think that's the path we're on. Dan? Yeah, I think Amazon is a pretty easy target. This is a company that's supposed to do $340 billion in sales this year, have about $10 billion in net income, and they have not been paying federal taxes over the last few years because of some uh, tax loss carry, for, uh, carry forward and some other issues. And listen, you know, we are literally printing trillions of dollars to bail out corporate America and our citizens for an unforeseen thing. But some some point, somebody's got to pay for it. And ultimately, I think you will see um, higher corporate taxes going forward. And companies like Amazon should be obligated to actually pay something. I think that's what uh, the vice president said, you know, mm -hmm. enough with the trickery um, and let's do our fair share. I think it's interesting that last year we had this huge debate about billions of dollars of tax credits 
for Amazon going forward to come to, you know, any number of different domiciles here in the U.S. Um, I just think that, you know, we get painted if you're bearish on stocks or the stock market, you're not a patriot, you're un-American. You're hearing a lot of that stuff sort of right now. Um, isn't it kind of un-American not to pay your fair share when your market cap is $1.2 trillion and you're the richest man on the planet? Um, you know, to me, I think there's other ways to do your part um, and just paying taxes, even if it's at 21 percent, which is what the rest of corporate America is doing um, at its max on a federal basis, makes some sense to me. I just think that it's interesting that Amazon can be the target. But in, in this time of pandemic, it is one of the few companies in, in America that is hiring thousands of people yes. and also delivering groceries and keeping us entertained while we're sheltered at home. So, I mean, well, it's well, hold interesting up. Mel, time. Mel, to, let yeah. me just jump in. Sure. Let, let me just jump in. And, and that's a great point, except for the fact that they're one of like a handful of retailers that were allowed to be open. And, you know, Facebook issued this small business survey where, this week where they uh, surveyed 86,000 small businesses. The numbers were staggering about how few of them are going to reopen. I think maybe 30 percent of them will not reopen. Fifty percent of them will not hire back the same workers. So all of that, not all of that, you can't pin that on Amazon, but Amazon effect has a lot to do with that. Amazon, just like Walmart before it, is killing, you know, mom and pop uh, kind of businesses. So to me, at the end of the day, you know, I, I don't know how you paint them with such a great brush like that. Well, I, I just, you know, I, I think if you look at Walmart and you look at Amazon, um, they have been destroying the competition through price. And, and, and you know, they can they can be lost leaders. And we've seen that. Look, Walmart, um, Walmart puts, you know, effectively is putting the, the, the crimps on every other retailer because they are taking major losses on, on food and groceries because they, they are dominating on price. Amazon um, has spent years investing in logistics and ERP because they saw this day coming. Um, and and, and they're, they're turning the screws. Now, is it, is it right to, to, um, you know, to punish them for being that far ahead of everybody and having that type of infrastructure? I think it was important they were here. Here. All right. Coming up, the moment you've been waiting for, our top story of the week, the big trend coming out of the West Coast that could have major ripple effects across the entire U.S. workforce. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back. And now it is the moment you have been waiting for, our number one story this week, the work from home boom. Twitter, Square, Facebook all announcing plans to let their employees work from home permanently. I sat down with California Governor Gavin Newsom earlier this week, asked him about it. Here's what he told me. No, I, I think that was a trend line that will become a headline. Uh, I think we've accelerated change, change that was already underway. Uh, I think some are promoting radical change. I believe we're just accelerating change that was underway. So that implies lots of ripple effects in terms of commercial real estate, in terms of residential real estate, Tim Seymour, in terms of what we buy. And that goes to how I teased in TV parlance, teased this segment. And that is that this yes, had to did. do with yoga pants, for instance, because you work from home and you're not putting on real pants. You're not putting on a dress. You're no, not, you know, uh, none of that. You I'm don't not... need that. You may not even need pants. <laughs> I don't need no pants. Don't need no pants. I don't need no shoes. I'm actually barefoot right now, and I'm not going to let you pan down. In fact, I'm in charge of panning down, so no one will see it. Um, Guy Adami would hate. Guy Adami has a problem with feet, so I, he wouldn't want to see it either. But I'm not wearing 
shoes right now. I am wearing pants. And, and ultimately, I, I do believe that some of these trends were, were in place. I also believe that uh, it was socially uh, required to, to give this type of a mandate. I, like, as someone that's been an employer, uh, not anywhere near of that size, um, I, I, I kind of like my people in the office. I think, I think ultimately there are cost savings, and I think there will be efficiencies that are born out of this. Um, and I do think less people will be going back to work, but I don't think this is the new corporate America. Uh, and I do think that there are uh, major impacts for people like Starbucks and fast food and, and folks that are serving a, a, a commuter audience and obviously Uber and Lyft. Um, I, I think for the next year, year and a half, we will be in an environment where you will continue to see uh, a lot of working from home. But uh, I don't think this is the new normal. Uh, I think it's part of a progression of where uh, technology has allowed us to work from almost anywhere. That's great. Um, but the office is the office. You know, Tim, you just mentioned Guy, and Guy's not here. He's a fabulous market uh, prognosticator, but you know what? i got to tell oh, you, yeah. he's also a great dad. He's at home. He's at home tonight celebrating Lily Adami's birthday, so shout out to Lily. Happy birthday. Guy, we Lily. miss you. Um, you know, on yeah, right. On this work-from-home thing, you know, I think it's interesting. It's obviously accelerated some trends. Technology's been a big part of that, but corporate culture is something that I think is very American thing here. We've done an amazing job. We're one of the most innovative countries in the world when it comes to technology. And a lot of that has to do with creating ecosystems and network effects. And I just don't see that changing much. So when you think about the two industries that I know best, Wall Street and even Silicon Valley, I don't really think they were meant to be decentralized. I think they're flexing right now because they have the tech to do it. But I think when we get back to a sense of normal, I think a lot of us will be back in those places. And I'll just make one other point. WeWork has gone from $47 billion to $3 billion valuation. If we do have a decentralized workforce going forward, WeWork is going to go back up to be a $47 billion uh, valuation at some point in the next five to 10 years. Shaking your head, BK. Couldn't disagree more with what Dan said. Couldn't disagree more with what he said. I mean, first of all, I rented about from Guy. WeWork. I was in there the other day. No, well, not about Guy, and particularly not about Lily. Happy birthday <laughs> to Lily. I might as well throw that in there. But in terms of, of the flex, which I love that millennial term that he's using. He's very hip, this Daniel. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, I was in WeWork the other day. Everybody was moving out. Nobody wants to be in that dense environment like yeah. that anymore. Not only that, I can tell you, I sent my team home in early March. I was concerned that we would lose something not being in the office. I wouldn't be able to operate my business. And I am shocked at how well I can operate my business in a decentralized and distributed way. That doesn't mean the office goes away, but there's going to be a certain percentage of people that just do not come back. And people have realized, hey, I can run my business from anywhere. I don't need to be in the office. It's going to have impact not just on commercial real estate, but residential real estate. Call any broker in upstate New York, in Hudson Valley or the Poconos. Yeah. People are buying houses out there because they're not going back to work and they don't need to be on a train line. So I think this is a major shift that doesn't mean you don't need big buildings anymore, but they're not going to be as full as they used to. And, and it's great that BK is going to move to the Poconos. Um, BK, enjoy it out there. The, the Mount Airy Lodge is actually heart-shaped tubs and The whatnot. champagne glass um, pools, but, remember that? The champagne glass, glass tub is more my style. Okay, go on. That's right. <laughs> exactly. But 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 I but I think you know we've spent no time. We spent very little time, I should say. Uh, great grammar, Tim. 
Uh, talking about airlines on, on this show, and, and if you think about where Delta Airlines makes their most money, it's from business travel. Uh, and what has been essentially the, the, the lifeblood of, of airlines has been the ability uh, to move business travelers around at, at almost costs that uh, seem to be indiscriminate at points. So um, I'm worried about the airlines and how they recover from this, because at least it, it is a race against time right now in terms of cash burn for airlines. And while I do think we're going back to work, um, I don't think they're going to get back to full time. And, and as, as as I said before these guys started, my view is we're somewhere in between. I think we're going back to work, but it's very clear. You don't need to fly to London for that conference like you used to. It's very clear that Zoom or uh, other offerings have, have changed the way we're going to business meetings, and that will change business travel forever. And maybe people won't necessarily want to embrace work from home as, as much as we think. I mean, Facebook is saying, let us know where you're going to be based, and then we're going to adjust your salary. So there's no arbitrage. I mean, Dan, if you're thinking you're going to pull in a Silicon Valley salary and then live in yeah. Ohio, you know, where there's a lower cost of living, that, that's not going to happen, sounds like. Well, here, here's the other takeaway. You know, divorce rates are going to skyrocket in America if we're all <laughs> going to be working from home for too much longer here. So I'll just leave you with that. I mean, my, my marriage is doing great, but wow. uh, the rest of you guys I'm worried about. <laughs> They, they seem all right, I, I think. Save him. Save him, <laughs> Melissa. Exactly. Well, thanks, guys, for playing along. That was a fun hour. Uh, that does it for this special hour of Fast Money. What an hour it was, wasn't it? Have Happy a great Memorial Day. Day weekend. Be safe. Our CNBC special coverage, Markets and Turmoil, starts right now. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu.